Welcome all to New Perspectives, and with us here today is Dr. Alok Pandey, whom we're always greatly honored to host. We uh, we welcome you, Alok, and we are sincerely appreciative of your participation in this series on the spiritual essence of religions and their role in the future development of mankind. And with us also today is H.P. Rama, founder and president of our university and benefactor of the Sri Aurobindo Integral Life Centers here in Fountain Inn, South Carolina, and Surat, India. And I'm Rade, and with me is Vladimir Yatsenko. So today, Alok addresses the Gita, whose focus on action and the principles that govern the way of works makes it a book of immense practical spirituality. Alok says... The Gita played not only an important part in Sri Aurobindo's own yoga, but it can provide a potential base for entering into the yoga of supermental transformation. In his talk today, he will touch upon the relevance of the Gita in reference to the future evolution of mankind. I am also very pleased to announce that Dr. Pandey will be a keynote speaker at our 2023 Sri Aurobindo Integral Yoga Retreat which will take place at Greenville Marriott here in South Carolina, July 5th through 9th. And the theme for this year's retreat is the journey of integral discovery, development, and self-mastery. Our other keynote speakers include Shudalu Ranade, Matthew Andrews, and Vladimir. And we have a very special guest speaker, Dr. Vasant Lad, founder and director of the Ayurvedic Institute. So I just wanted to remind everyone is as you're coming in and getting situated that our early bird discount rate does end May 31st. So there's only about 12 days left to receive this uh, special rate. And I'll be putting uh, the URL to our website that uh, can give you more information on the retreat and also a place where you can register. So I'll put that URL in the chat box uh, shortly. Um, lastly, before turning it over to Alok, I just want to remind everyone that there will be time for Q&A at the end of this session. So any questions you might have for Alok or comments, please put in the uh, Q&A box. So thank you. And uh, Dr. Pandey, I'm going to turn it over to you now. Okay. Uh, thank you so much for the mm, wonderful subject, because uh, this is a question people ask. Uh, the mother has said that the age of religions is over and uh, I would add uh, the age of ideologies is also over because uh, very often religions and ideologies uh, operate at very similar levels, only their approaches are different. Uh, that's because we are entering an age of great uh, synthesis, an age of synthesis towards which we are moving and once mother expressed it so so beautifully when she said that uh, it is not this or that, it is this and that. So this is the uh, new age. It's an age which demands synthesis. And by its very nature, synthesis means inclusiveness. A synthesis means that all the divergent strands of human effort that have led us today where we are, of course, always guided, aided, led by the divine, if I may say so. Um, so it needs that all these should be brought together, not in a haphazard way, not in the way that we try to attempt synthesis. In, in other words, 
by a mix and match of their outer process and practices, but picking up the essence. So I suppose uh, if we pick up the essence of religion, uh, there are two aspects in all religions. In fact, one is the essence, which is the core, and uh, the other is the outer uh, practices. And if I may say so, there is even an outermost in which many of the um, you know rituals, uh, many outer practices, ways of life which get associated and um, uh, over a period of time, because for man, these are much easier. We tend to lose the inner core. This what is, if, if I may uh, say so, one form of dharma seglani which the Gita speaks of. The yoga is lost. And one example which the Gita itself gives and uh, Shurbindo emphasizes on it is the idea of sacrifice. Now, if we go back to the far back times, sacrifice is the way or it, it's the, uh, by sacrifice, this world has come into existence. And if we go back to the Vedas, the idea of sacrifice is so beautiful because it is the one divine who by sacrificing himself, of course, Shubhinda says much more than the Purusha, it is the divine Shakti, the divine mother. He created this wonderful words, world, this wonderful universe. And what it means is that in this world, everything is interconnected deeply. Not necessarily outwardly, but in the deep essence of things, we are all interconnected. And it also implies that the moment any unit of life or any unit of creation tries to live life believing it is separate and cut off, then that's where adharma steps in. So I have my individuality, I have a right to be and well, that's the way the freedom is basically fundamental. It's inbuilt in creation at a certain level. But this freedom is to freedom to develop in my own way, through my own method. But the moment this freedom tends to cut off all the rest, believes that I am separate, not only distinct, distinct we are, but separate, cut off from all the rest and everything is meant for me. And that's how many other ills that get tagged along with it. Then it is moving on a self-destructive path. And that I believe many, uh, the clash of ideologies, the clash of civilizations, the clash of religions has taken place on that ground because of this exclusivity. And here we find very useful, not just hints, but powerful statements from the Gita, which help us to come out of this narrow, sectarian, uh, cultish almost way of life, which has been the bane of religion. So let's begin with, uh, you know, uh, before that, one more thing, as Shabindu points out, that in every religion, in every scripture, we have these two elements. One is the eternal truths. So when a religion says that, well, there is one God, it's an eternal truth. Even logically, whether we believe in God or not, there has to be just one origin of the universe. There cannot be multiple origins. This is just pure science, logic, whichever way we approach it, there has to be one origin. It is equally eternally true that that origin has to be in everything. So there has to be this, uh, uh, these, these two are eternal truths. To that we can add a third truth and that's where yoga comes that it is given to man. And uh, fortunately, if I may say so, uh, to man alone to find, discover and unite with this truth and manifest it. So these are three fundamental truths on which yoga stands. Now, where we begin to err is that, you know, one, once we say that it is there is one truth, if I say it is my truth, it's my prophet, my guru, my avatar, the founder of my religion, that's where the problem starts. Because then we are living in a time warp. 
we have not uh, looked at things on a vaster time frame because yoga is not born with a person in fact if you look at the gita that's where gita helps us and i find it very very beautiful when uh, arjun asks krishna well who are you and what is all this you are giving to me and he says no 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 i am just recovering the yoga which is lost and i suppose one of the meanings of dharma siglani is the loss of yoga because dharma is the path through which we align our will and our way of life with the one divine intent so we have to align ourselves to the divine purpose in creation and whatever aligns us with that that is dharma in the broadest possible sense and whatever is misaligned whatever tends to distort it deviate it the stronger the deviation the stronger the distortion that becomes dharma siglani so shri krishna tells him very uh, interestingly he said no no basically you know uh, we have both lived many lives and i gave this yoga first to vivaswan now it's very interesting because vivaswan is the name of sun god for this particular chaturyog so there are many names of sun god but he is referring to in this chaturyog i have given the yoga to sun god and perhaps that explains why in many civilizations uh, the worship of the sun in some form or the other was regarded as a very high form of uh, you know seeking the great god i mean in egyptian civilization ra is the god Uh, of course horus is of course there but ra is the ultimate uh, there is also sun temple in india uh, much before you know there there was cult of worship of the sun we have this in even in china way back far back china we have this in europe so this worship of the sun god the mayan civilization incidentally so he said i gave it to the sun god vivaswan and vivaswan transmitted it to manu manu is the prototypal uh, hum- human being who presides over a whole cycle of human evolution so each age of four uh, four yugas each cycle of four yugas has a particular manu and this is the seventh one and uh, the, the manu who presides over this is shraddha so there is uh, he gives it to manu and manu gives it to the line of solar kings solar dynasty the ikshvaku clan which is the suryavanshi's uh, kings of whom rama is the great uh, you know final uh, finest flower not the last flower but the finest flower and then it passes on to the chandravanshi's and yadavanshi's and so on and so forth so basically when we look at it this way so origin of yoga is not by a human being or by a founder this is something we need, very beautiful about the gita and that moment shri krishna is not speaking as shri krishna the earthly avatar repeatedly he says who he is in the gita as shobindo says it's a supernormal state of consciousness where he is completely identified with the supreme godhead of course he is the supreme godhead who has taken a human birth all avatars represent that but at that moment he has reclaimed his supreme godhead and from there he starts so the first thing i suppose for all religions essence that there is a greater consciousness there is a supreme consciousness and everything starts from there and if a religion cannot help me connect with that supreme consciousness which is my supreme possibility highest possibility then it stops short i won't say it is false or it is wrong because every human effort religious secular any kind towards human progress development growth in any which way is something laudable where there are so many kinds of effort but it stops short of really um, where one would like to be so first thing 
when we talk about the future uh, you know we have to remember that yoga is done by the divine and so we come back to the idea of sacrifice that the divine who has sacrificed himself to become this creation so we see that this again sacrifice became something intrinsic it became something outward in its deepest sense sacrifice represents the sense of oneness which is there in creation which we can reclaim by sacrifice psychologically it becomes a process in which in the fire of aspiration we put um, all our nature our thought our feelings our will our impulsions above all our actions tangible visible and by that sacrifice we refine purify sublimate them and eventually when anything is refined it tends to move towards its original state that is the basic principle of sacrifice that we can either keep things in their crude state or we can refine them purify them and through this process of purification we can uh, reclaim the lost divinity or the divine element in every process so this is what Uh, is one very important aspect shobindo emphasizes upon shuddhi and that's one of my as an aside i must say that many neo yogas if i may use the word uh, they miss out on this very fundamental purification process so we see that in for instance in patanjali's yoga sutras or the ashtang yoga the first two steps are about the purification they are about moral and ethical purification then come asana and pranayama then comes the rest which is pratyahar dharana dhyan and samadhi so essentially this process of purification through sacrifice is the real meaning of uh, you know um, uh, the word but later on it has turned into something which is very external so it became the fire worship where we light up a fire and we put uh, you know oblations we put uh, honey we put uh, well Uh, ghee into it and all kinds of thing then it became something still more crude and vulgar so the crude and vulgar idea was that i must sacrifice all joys i must sleep on a bed of nails and shivinder speaks of it as a crude and vulgar notion of sacrifice that i must give my body torture and suffering and of course uh, some places it is very uh, very fascinating because there is a place in india where uh, i mean tirupati where you just tonsor your head <laughs> and you can get whatever you want <laughs> this is something amazing so when i had visited uh, the people asked me that we can get you a very deluxe darshan and would you like to come i said no thank you <laughs> i have a very good pact with krishna <laughs> and i prefer krishna who is delightful and happy rather than krishna who likes to see my head tonsured so well sacrifice has taken such meaning it it becomes even more crude it's this not the uh, end because tonsuring your hair or head is still okay rather than chopping off your head the crudest and vulgar no- notion of sacrifice which we see certain religions have gone to that extreme where they talk about sacrificing animals which was there even in uh, you know certain crude early forms of uh, even in india i know goat sacrifice then there is human sacrifice which was there in very primitive times so basically these outer elements have to be removed we have to catch the essence but if we insist on the outer and we miss out on the essence then the religion is no more a force of the future it becomes something obsolete even an obstruction an obstacle and has to be 
uh, I mean, nobody has to do anything. Time, the flowing wave, evolutionary wave of time will take it away. So this is something which Gita reveals so beautifully that yoga is being done by the divine. Another very beautiful thing, and that's where I said one is looking backward to the origin, but becoming one in the origin is not enough because very often people say that, uh, you know, ultimately the origin is one. Yes, very true. But I also need to know the intent of that origin in creation. So Gita, of course, uh, reveals to us very beautifully about that which is manifested, Vyakta, and that which is unmanifested, Avyakta. And that's something which Shobindo repeatedly reminds us. There is a whole conversation of the mother where she is asked about people like, you know, uh, their names. I won't uh, take those names, but great saints, great names. And uh, she says, yes, yes, I know all of them. Because basically they were saying human nature cannot be changed. This was the thesis. And she says, well, well, I know all of them. And that's because they believed in going back to the unmanifest. Whereas uh, manifestation by its nature is incomplete and imperfect. But it is moving towards a great goal. And that's where we find that Gita is so uh, beautifully reveals this truth. That there is a purpose in creation and this world is moving towards a grand culmination. Now, the Bhagavad Gita does not reveal to us explicitly what is that culmination. But uh, if we go back to the Mahabharata of which Gita is a part, uh, it is very clear which culmination it is going towards. Even in the Gita, at the end it comes. It is the victory of the divine in man by a collaboration with the divine element and the human element. So that's how Sanjay declares at the end that, you know, uh, wherever there is Partha Dhanurdhara and where there is uh, Shri Krishna, there there is victory. And I was very, uh, very much moved by this. Uh, I've been rereading the Mahabharata just because of the joy and somebody had sent me knowing my love for it. So after a long time, I'm connecting and I don't know whether it's visible on my table or not, but... Now, there is a small little Mahabharata. Before you enter into the second Adhyaya of Mahabharata, there is an Anu Kramanika, which is basically a miniature Mahabharata. So, people often uh, give us all kinds of lessons that Mahabharata is about don't war, don't have war, don't fight, because, you know, fight will lead to destruction. But none of those things. In the beginning, Mahabharata states its purpose that, well, Dhritra says over a number of statements, passages, that... I should have known that we are going to lose this battle. And then when you read through those passages, the lesson of the war is that at the end of the day, wherever there is the divine and wherever is the human, there there is victory. And then we know how the mother puts it in, in very beautiful terms that no human will can eventually stand against the divine will. And then she says, let us deliberately put ourselves on the side of the divine and the victory will be there. Now, this putting oneself on the side of the divine is the whole art and science of yoga. Because normally, uh, we are led from behind. That's what very interestingly the Gita reveals. At least in the, in the preface to the Gita reveals that human beings are driven by the ego and it's not that divine condemns or uh, not like that. He is pushing us through the ego on the basis of the strength or the weakness of our egoism. But there comes a moment when he must stand at the juncture and lead humanity through a uh, you know, an impossible situation in which humanity has entered. So this third element of the Gita, as I said, Gita speaks about Lok Sangraharth. Humanity is moving 
collective march of mankind but it doesn't explicitly say where it only says there is a divine victory which is going to take place and that victory we can either take it in the context of the mahabharata or we take it in the larger context that there is the divine victory um, which is to be established upon earth of which the mahabharata war is one and many wars uh, had this similar theme uh, but another aspect of this divine victory is that it brings into uh with clarity that that means there is something which is opposing this divine victory see this is by the the very fact that there is a battle so the context of the gita the background of the gita it's not just a pragmatic book which of course it is but look at the extreme pragmatism unlike uh, spiritual discourses which are given in 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 the setting of hermitage <laughs> so you go to an ashram and you have a baba ji who is giving you some nice lectures on the gita the gita is given in a setting of the mahabharata on the battlefield and this is something very beautiful and interesting if a ghor karma battle is uh, you are killing people or getting killed there cannot be i can't imagine a, a action which is uh, which could be technically regarded as worse that's what that's how the gita speaks of it arjun says why are you pushing me into this ghor karma and uh, shurvinda speaks about it himself so uh, even in this ghor karma yoga can be practiced so uh, this something so wide and catholic and this what sometimes very difficult to understand that uh, you know yoga is not just when we are i mean in the ashram context this something which i keep sharing or uh, that uh, yoga integral yoga is not when for 6 hours i am doing work in the ashram department the whole of life must become yoga and and gita states it so powerfully and explicitly so much so that it says even ahar vihar yukta ahar viharasya which means two things of course one is that uh, ahar is one can understand while we are eating vihar when i am moving in the garden when i am if i may say so even in in the joys of life vihar uh, still it must be done in a state of yoga so it takes into the ambit of yoga all possible uh, business of human life this how shivinda puts it and i don't know of any other scripture of course i am i am uh, i mean in the vedas there is very clear um, hint of that uh, but this joining of the entire taking the entire human life summing it up rounding it up and lifting it as a as an adoration as a song as a as a um, through the sacrificial fire toward the eternal for its transmutation this is something amazing and uh, personally to me the one thing which had the first sentence i read of shirobindo and that uh, answered all my queries uh, in a flash uh, though its meaning i understood much later is all life is yoga so this whole idea of yoga yoga is not meant just to you know do certain practices or uh, kneel down or go to a temple all that is come much later it's okay it has its place because uh, a man in his crudeness needs discipline and maybe some kind of discipline is probably uh, necessary to tell him that you know this time and that time uh, in india we had for instance morning time and then sandhya time well these are very good times when uh, the energy is very good or you know there are um the idea of you know going on, on a sunday to say hi to god or or you know kneeling down five times and calling god all that may be a preparatory thing but the real essence is the fact that you know the divine is carrying you everywhere 
and i think to live with this idea that we are never abandoned this comes strongly in the gita uh, so why do we feel abandoned because unlike um, krishna we try to take the reins of our life and forget that you know he is the one who should be the guide uh, we are the travelers but the one who gives direction is krishna and uh, well i know people try to explain it uh, as the image of krishna is buddhi who guide your life by buddhi buddhi is your guru uh, but that's a rather um, uh, well that's a very immediate explanation of the that famous sentence of the Uh, the image of the chariot which i find very significant in the gita uh, in everyday life that what is driving me is my senses driving me is my mind driving me mind is the rein the horses are the senses the vital energy combined or is my buddhi the one who is holding the reins driving me but shri krishna says this buddhi can have two fold movements one is turned upward and inward otherwise a lower buddhi which is only turned towards pragmatic and immediate selfish interest can completely misguide me so there is a lower buddhi and a higher buddhi and beyond it is the great self so this image is so powerful and it has helped me personally in all of life journey that whenever you know senses begin to drive you or your mind is playing tricks or buddhi is turned uh, downward and outward towards your personal gains and selfish interests one looks into it and sees that tries to find that well is this the course that my charioteer shri krishna wants me to take so this is where we need to Uh, the gita gives us many many beautiful things as i said purification which is fundamental process of yoga then all actions absolutely samagram then a third thing which is very beautiful about the gita uh, we hear about the divine being everywhere but uh, what does it really mean and and the gita uses a sentence cryptically samagram mam Uh, and shurbindo emphasizes upon it shurbindo picks up some of these very interesting terms like manushi tanu ashritam i dwell in the heart of man in the body of man manushi tanu uh, meaning thereby we have to treat everything as sacred but more so human body this is the temple of the lord uh, and uh, you know to throw hurl abuses you know uh, all kinds of things even when there is violence so that will come to a little later so how this is the original temple and this must be kept clean both outwardly and inwardly so there is another very interesting aspect because in real life where because it's a battle between the past and the future as the mother said that you know make of us the hero warriors we aspire to become may we fight successfully the great battle of the future to be born against the past that seeks to endure so that we may be ready to receive the new things and manifest them so whenever we fight this battle this is an inner dimension and an outer dimension the gita brings it so beautifully so the outer dimension of the battle is that there are protagonists who represent adharma and there are protagonists who stand for dharma and we cannot close our eyes to that we cannot say that all is good uh you know all squat on the western front well all is good but to keep saying all is good is uh, you know uh, a straight road of adharma to enter so we have to remember that there are actual representatives of both kinds we see that shobindo's involvement in the second world war uh, speaking of that and in whatever way one gets uh, engaged with it but also there is an inner war and the two are simultaneous so people often ask that well shri krishna speaks of ahinsa as a great you know even 
Indian thought says that ahinsa parmo dharma, and of course it says something else also subsequently which people forget. But it speaks about ahinsa. It speaks about shama. It speaks about dhriti. So uh, where do these things uh, come when it comes to face to face with real life situation? Say in a situation of war. Now that is the beauty. Ahinsa is an inner state. Now I have to be sure that I don't mean to injure or harm anyone. It's an inner state. Whereas battle is something outward. My inner state should be never even passingly I should wish to harm someone, hurt someone, injure someone. That will is what differentiates a person, the inner motive. So one thing which Gita uh, reveals is that it's not the outer action. Because in this world, we are so much carried away by outer action. Oh, the person did this. Oh, the person did that. But what is important is the inner motive. And that is something which I see so beautifully in, in the supramental creation, which has already begun. I am sure about it. I can see it happening. Is that it is unearthing it is removing all the covers neat beautiful covers in which we hide the inner motives so outer action is okay that's one part but inner action has to also uh, inner state is also important and in terms of seeing an action it is the inner state so if there is sense of ahinsa if there is uh, shama inner state of forgiveness which we find in all the Indian scriptures so I am resisting my temptation to get into my uh, you know flow of stories <laughs> so th then when you fight a battle so it doesn't mean that I don't fight a battle it doesn't mean I will not lift up arms on the contrary a person who is in an inner state of non-violence doesn't mean injury or harm he is in an inner state of forgiveness when he fights he fights powerfully and then he is on the side of God. So one is not on the side of God simply by declaring that I am fighting for God. So because this also nowadays everybody says that I am fighting for God. But what it means to fight for God? It means three things. Inwardly, I am conscious of the Godhead within me. But also of the Godhead within even those whom I may be called upon to stay. Of course Gita takes up one word further to slay I I won't use that word, but let's say that, you know, even called upon to stay. Still, even in them, there is God. So even when we are wrestling, it's the wrestle of brothers uh, with Krishna, as Shobinda says. It's not wrestling of enemies, but the sense of enemy, of hatred, of violence, of anger. These are the things of perdition. So it clearly differentiates and uh, outer and from the inner and gives importance to the inner state from which the outer must flow. So ordinarily we judge the inner from the outer, but the Gita reminds us that it is the inner which gives value to the outer. As Shobinda says in one of the places, action and event have no importance in themselves except for the idea force that moves it and the idea that the force is there to serve. So always to reorient ourselves that why am I doing this? This hidden motive. And one has to be very sincere. Look at this motive. Look at this motive threadbare. And then that motive is what really you know uh, defines an action or gives value to it. So this is something very beautiful from the Gita. Then another aspect, this Samagram Maam. We see one aspect of the divine or the other. So again it enters into either or. So... Uh, we either say that the divine is only this impersonal nirgun brahm, another is sagun or nirguna guni or you know sharbhav and akshar and purushottam. 
Now, the divine is all of them together. The human mind tries to cut into bits and parts and emphasizing on one aspect or the other loses track of the totality. So, I just love this uh, phrase, Samagra Maam. He, know, he who knows me in all the parts and principles as the impersonal, the personal, the supra-personal, the immanent in creation, the divine on each and every plane, the divine who is in the subconscious, the divine who reigns above, you know that poem of Sri the God, uh, O thou who pervadest all the worlds below, yet sittest above, master of all who work and rule and know, servant of love, thou who disdainest not the worm to be, not even the clod, therefore we know by that humility that thou art God. And the Gita teaches this humility in a very, very interesting way. There is that phrase which we often misunderstand. Of course, the very fact that divine is leading you must bring humility. That's not you, but, but the divine who is leading. More and more in the Gita, we see that slowly Sri Krishna takes him to the point where he says, Look, give your reins in my hands. Sarva dharman parityajya mamikam shanamraja. So in the beginning, though physically he has taken into his hands, but Arjuna has not really handed over the reins. And a time comes, the grand culmination of the Gita, where he hands over the reins in the hands of Sri Krishna and says, As appointed by you, O Keshav, lead me into this great battle and I am here to do thy bidding. It reminds me of many lines in Savitri. By the way, interestingly, it is so in, so beautiful that even when Sri in the Live Divine speaks of, in the last chapter, uh, the divine life, he speaks about the divine being as a person upon earth, supramental being, and he brings in the idea of the Gita. What would be the personality of such a person? And he quotes from the Gita. Then again he says that, well, uh, you know, he would be at once against the background of a vast impersonality. There is the personality which is not rigid and fixed. And then he says that surely to discover the divine within and in the creation and the cos and beyond the cosmos. These are three levels at which we must reclaim. Because then only we can participate in the great um, divine event that is taken, taking place in creation right now. All these three levels we have to reclaim. Not just within us, but within creation, in cosmos and of course beyond it. So the Gita beautifully synthesizes all these three together. Shar, Akshar and Purushottama. And these are the ways in which we also have to discover at each of these levels. So it's not enough when, when uh, we speak about discovering the divine within the psychic being. Uh, and then the divine in creation uh, Shubhendra speaks about spiritualization which eventually leads us to the overmind consciousness which is by its nature a global consciousness. One cannot hope to even talk about supramental frankly unless the consciousness has become vast because uh, that is a condition Shubhendra in himself said that you know it is the plane of the gods and it's a global consciousness and until one reaches that state it's a cosmic consciousness one cannot hope to go to the next level. And in the Gita, in the grand vision of Kurukshetra, we see all these three are reconciled. Uh, in the Vishwarup, we see individual, where Sri Krishna is the upholder of the uh, the individual divine manifesting through the body and mind and uh, personality of Sri Krishna. There is the universal, the Vishwarup, 
and then as the Gita describes, escaping him on all sides. So that is something where we see the reconciliation of the transcendent, the universal and the individual. So it's so important that uh, uh, we, we need to be very clear that yoga is not an individual pursuit for my personal moksha. That's a sattvic illusion. And uh, today we see a lot of things uh, done in the name of yoga. It's okay. Uh, that's uh, each one has his own journey. But much of it is preparatory. There is no yoga without purification. And the real yoga begins after we have discovered the psychic being as the mother puts it. Because then we are conscious collaborators. Before that we are just struggling. And then it's not enough just to discover the divine within and find an escape door. But to widen one's consciousness till one becomes one at least with the, with the, with the humanity which is all around. Of course one with all creation. And whatever gains one has within get transmitted into others. Shubindo brings it in the sense of yoga as a representative of humanity. Each one who practices this yoga is a representative. But always to keep that inner freedom intact and that's what the transcendental uh, gives us. So it's a state of inner liberation in which the yogin lives and he acts not for any personal gain but for keeping the march of mankind intact. That is his purpose in creation and individually he has to be guided by the divine, surrendered to the divine, open to the divine will for which all the practices of Nishkam Karma and most important with which we can stop. Uh, Nishkam Karma incidentally is such a powerful practice and Shobindu emphasizes it that whatever one may do, even if one can do nothing, even remembering and offering is difficult, at least Practice Nishkam Karma, whatever one does, it should not be done for any desire, return, expectation or a particular result. And this itself breaks the knot of the ego very powerfully. So this is of course common practice. Uh, then of course remember and offer is the common element in the Gita and, and the mother puts it so beautifully in one sentence. He summarizes to choose without preference. And to execute without desire. <laughs> so choose without preference is only when I have uh, offered my individuality, whatever ego individuality in the hands of the divine. Uh, otherwise, I'll have biases. I'll choose based on uh, my preferences, how it is going to you know, be in my favor or not in my favor. But to choose what is really the true thing to be done. What is dharma? And then to execute without desire, not for... A, a, a result which is favorable to me but for the fulfillment of the divine will so ultimately if you see uh, what is supramental yoga it is the grand fulfillment of the divine will in creation because the original will is ekoham bahushyam so Sri Krishna leads us very far into this territory and he knocks at the gates of the super mind when he says vyaktoham avyaktoham when he reveals his vishwarupa when he speaks about Sarva Dharma and Parityaja, because there is so much talk about Sadharma and everything, but there comes a time when we have to utterly surrender in the hands of God. So, uh, again, the Gita starts with a fundamental surrender where Sri Krishna says, You are my leader and guide. Arjuna says to Sri Krishna, You teach me. And it ends up in a complete surrender. And if we read the essence of Sri Yoga, he speaks about surrender to the divine and infinite mother is uh, our soul means and this yoga begins with that it it proceeds with that and ends in that of course there are differences between the yoga of the Gita and Shubhindu's yoga that we all know and uh, just very quickly 
um, we can speak about it. The idea of transformation is not there in the Gita. And the Gita emphasizes on the Purusha aspect. It passingly mentions the Paraprakriti and therefore transformation is not there. It doesn't speak about the instrumental nature which has to change, uh, which is not there. But yet, so the yoga of the Gita is a general karma yoga, which is very good preparation, uh, excellent preparation because it prepares a wide ground, uh, 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 you know, dynamically prepares us rather than just passively for the next step which is the transformation of nature. But one key practice which is so much emphasized in the Gita and so much emphasized in Sri and so less practiced <laughs> almost, <laughs> uh, you know, is the key practice. Everybody speaks about uh, how to meditate and how to have descent and all this. <laughs> the key practice is equanimity. And so much so that, you know, of course, Patanjali regards it as the culmination. Samatvam yoga uchyate. And Shobindu says that the Gita emphasizes so much. And at each of the levels, Shitoshnam, hot or cold, either weather, physical contacts, Sukh Dukheshu, things which afflict our vital. Uh, it may give happiness, uh, it may give sorrow. Hani Labho, we may lose or we may gain. Yet, jaya jayo, in victory or defeat, we must be completely uh, turned toward the divine with total faith that the divine will is the ultimate and whatever happens will ultimately be for the best. This Kalyan Shraddha, which if we look at the last parts of the um, synthesis of yoga, before Shobindo speaks about describing the supermind, Shobindo stops at faith and the divine Shakti. If one wants to know the essence of the yoga, it is faith and the Gita speaks of faith as so much importance it gives to faith. It says that man is his faith. And Shobindo emphasizes that whatever is our secret faith and the persistent will in us that we become. So that key of the Gita and in the course of journey, equanimity. Equanimity is not really a must in the yoga of uh, pure dhyana and uh, jnana because, you know, we are going inside. Uh, for the world, we can just be careless, we can be indifferent. That's, that's how many people have done. Uh, in bhakti yoga of the typical traditional bhakti yoga, again, equanimity is not required. I am happy with my beloved and the world can go to places. <laughs> but that's not the bhakti of the Gita. We have to worship him everywhere and in everything and in for for the gita for the karma yoga equanimity is a must and for shobindo's yoga equanimity is the fundamental practice the wide strong foundation on which the house of new creation can be built so this in a bri in brief is uh, everything can become an occasion for worship of the divine so beautiful patram pushpam phalam toyam what does he like uh, what will he receive from us? Even a drop of water, a blade of grass, half-eaten mango. That story of the mother, we, we ate the apple half and suddenly we remembered we had not offered it. Offer it now. <laughs> you know that story of Amal Kiran when he made a painting and mother suddenly says, this is very good. And then he remembered a bit shyly and bit uh, feeling ashamed that this was the only time that he remembered the mother. Suddenly, midway through, he remembered, I am supposed to remember. So, it doesn't matter. One moment, a few moments, this is the wealth, the treasure that we 
accumulate in life and take it with us and it is this wealth the impact of these inner states that mount as the vedic rishis says states upon states climb and mount that a time comes when there is the apocalypse when the egg burst and the chick flies out on strong wings assisted even by the winds that obstruct and it climbs higher and higher into realms immeasurable from where the forces of transformation comes and brings it upon earth as the messenger of the divine word and that's how shubhendra says the supramental bird so these are just some of the thing gita is too vast a subject too many beautiful things shubhendra says very little in the gita which is temporal most scriptures contain many things which are temporal which are locally valid the do's and don't the prescriptions the prescriptions but the gita is so much inward turned even it says ved vad it goes beyond it it goes beyond the scripture shabda brahmati vartate so actually it is one scripture where most of it is basically about uh, our inner practice and ascent toward the godhead very little which is external ritualistic formal dogmatic narrow and therefore prone to create problems so this where i would stop uh, geeta should be not just a national scripture for india it should be shubhendra spoke of it <laughs> but it's a scripture which should become part of the student program so that those who want to take it up seriously can take it up it it contains so much to help mankind toward the future we all know shubhendra spoke about it mother said it is yet going to help humanity liberate humanity and with sure been those essays on the gita its action has become uh, much more powerful so namaste and uh, any questions i am happy to answer thank you thank you alok so much for this it's always pleasure to hear this luminous you know thoughts on the gita and the integral yoga i have my own question uh, if you don't mind mm. yes um and this is uh, related to the transformation in the gita i was thinking all my life about this and never could solve it totally we assume that there is no transformation but must there must be something because karma yoga is yajna and in a way if yajna is there it is transforming nature yes in some way or another and maybe uh, shri krishna was not really emphasizing this way of transformation in our own you know parlance how we speak about this how shri rubindra speaks about it and the mother they brought it forward as a major topic but um, in their view in krishna's view this you know to to do the work to do the action in the in the way that will discover yourself will lead to the discovery of oneself that means you include the activity and nature into this process already and then bhakti yoga is totally transforming because once you start seeing the divine in everything it's yeah. already kind of transformation yes so um uh basically definitely there is psychic transformation and shobindo spoke not only about the gita he spoke about christian mysticism and he said that christian mysticism there is the psychic transformation they have not used the word 
So when you read some of these uh, mystics everywhere, I mean, if you read Sufi mystics, so there is definitely wherever there is bhakti, wherever there is faith, wherever there is surrender, utter surrender to the divine, definitely this is the first indispensable psychic transformation. And Shubhinda says that has already been achieved, not in that detail maybe, in the sense that even the physical actions were not guided by the psychic impulsion. Fair enough, but still there is a inner psychic transformation which is a very good starting point in the gita yes there is also the spiritual transformation it's it's not mentioned as opening to overhead planes it's not mentioned as the the, the what is missing is the descent but surely when shri krishna speaks about the great hierarchy of actions going to the buddhi and then to the greater self uh, basically he is opening the doors to the spiritual transformation there is the mention of the cosmic consciousness. There is the hint of the larger collective march of mankind. But yes, spiritual transformation is not developed in all its fullness. For instance, that you know, Arjuna's mind would be intuitivized, and you know, he has to be guided by his own. Uh, even if that uh, is a fair degree of spiritual transformation, I feel one step which mankind has to take next is the intuitivization. So it's not really an intuitive mind, not just as flashes in the mind, but his heart, his everything has to be intuitivized. So that is definitely, I wouldn't say is really mentioned. Psychic transformation for sure, but that is not unique to Gita. Uh, many bhakti marks, uh, Christian mystics and Sufis uh, equally, I would say the same thing. The Gita takes it to another level, definitely. And as you said, the yagna and all are fundamental purificatory process to a state of jivan mukta. So there is that inner liberation, which I would say without which talking of transformation is meaningless. A discovery of the divine being within, giving value to creation, to, to every aspect of life is uh, itself very transformative. And yes, uh, to see the divine in all beings. Uh, but that's something Krishna speaks about as the sign of the yogin, the one who is uh, Vasudevam, Sarvamiti, Samahatma, Chadurlaba. So he is giving it as a sign. See, he says that, but he doesn't in practice tell that, you know, Arjuna, this is the way you can arrive at it. He gives him hints that start seeing Samalost Kanchana and, you know, you start seeing Gai, Hastini, the Pandit and the Murk, all of them, you see the divine presence within. So this seeing the divine within is definitely there and seeing the divine in this collective march, all that is there. And certainly there is no talk about supramental transformation, though the fact that he is speaking repeatedly about the integral Godhead. So indirectly it is hinted. That's how I see essays on the Gita. Shubhinda speaks about it. Because if you come in contact with the integral Godhead, who is the integral Godhead? It's a different way of saying the supramental Godhead. It's the creator. I mean, he is the one, Samagram Maam. So if you have come in contact with the integral Godhead, I suppose there is no other way you can go but towards transformation. So there are hints, very luminous hints, powerful hints. But I wouldn't say that uh, it is developed, uh, not just a question of terminology, but it's not really developed. And I suppose the time was not right, not because Krishna didn't know. Very clearly there are hints. Vyakt and Avyakt, both he says, I am there. When he speaks about, uh, even in Vibhuti Yoga, when he speaks about, I am the Chaturya of even the Durta. I mean, <laughs> so he is uh, giving a very wide canvas. And this white canvas that is opening before Arjuna, Sarvkarmani, 
all these are very transformative experiences um, definitely some degree of spiritual transformation would take place in someone who is uh, really practicing the yoga of the gita but the descent that is definitely not there and of course the supramental manifestation that's something for the future yeah i would like to uh, kind of um, one more point before we come to the questions of others is that shubendu describes it so beautifully in the beginning the in introductory chapters that the first attempt is karma yoga when we rise to heaven yes, yes first yes. step the second step is self realization jnana yoga interestingly though bhakti yes. is in between yeah and this last step is bhakti yoga when the yeah. self realization answers and comes down as it were support Yes, here we have some hint of Sri Ramanuja's vision. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It has struck me also this particular, uh, uh, you know, arrangement of the uh, in the book, the synthesis of yoga. This particular arrangement strikes me also, and it also reminds me of that phrase in the Gita where Sri Krishna describes four kinds of bhaktas. So he speaks about arth and artharthi, and then he speaks about jigyasu and the jnani. and even in the gita if you really see the gita it starts with karma it goes into jnana and it culminates with bhakti so this is the same scheme that should be this followed and uh, if i may say so my personal take on this is that if bhakti has developed in a human being he is round the corner of course i am talking of true bhakti not uh, jumping over uh, that you know mridanga <laughs> and talmajira but true bhakti the self giving it means the person has reached round the corner and that's why the gita says don't uh, think now whether the person is you know he may have panditya he may be apparently gyani or not gyani but howsoever such a person lives or acts he acts in me and the divine acts through him so he takes it to another level altogether so yes it has struck me and very happily it has struck me <laughs> that yes bhakti is the grand crown shobhinda used the word crown and i do uh, understand that bhakti without jnana becomes uh, something very blinded it has led to all kinds of dangers and excesses you know it's a kind of misguided bhakti jnana uh, without bhakti is still safe but bhakti without jnana can be very dangerous uh, so i suppose works to purify ourselves through works growing knowledge and then yes bhakti becomes like the real uh, ultimate crown that you know the yogin uh, doesn't wear but the divine places on his head that's how shivinder describes in one and he says that uh, these paths of karma and jnana continues and becomes enriched yes. by bhakti it's quite yes it's the utter fulfillment i have in some of my you know uh, i have described it like this that uh, well uh, jnana is like we have a discussion with god in in a study room and then he takes takes me around to describe how the building has been made and what are the books in his library uh, through karma i become a servant and slave of god where he uh, uh, you know by by engaging with him in his various errands i get to know something about him but bhakti is like the beloved whom the divine takes to the bed and discloses his secret dreams so it is the utter embrace of god so bhakti is you know the ultimate that they are preparatory movements very important but bhakti is something which completely fuses one 
uh, with the divine. So ultimately, if we take it that, and even in supramental love, Shabinda speaks about it, that th there is a deliberately, a little thing is kept to enjoy the joy of union. Otherwise, if you completely merge, there is uh, nothing more left. So yes, bhakti is, uh, I mean, <laughs> what can be more delightful? And if we take it that delight is the ultimate uh, goal of goals, if I may say so, supramental is also to lay the base, the truth consciousness. But if delight is the origin and delight is the end, then bhakti, love is the uh, love and beauty. Beatitude are the right and the left hands uh, arms of delight. And harmony is its yeah way of life. So yes. So you're using Taitiri and all that, right? Yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. That's so wonderful. Uh, there are several questions to you here. Uh, one is asking, how and when does a person who is predominantly tamasic get the signal for transformation? Uh, <laughs> I think we should not wait for signal of transformation. We should wait for the signal when I feel like giving myself utterly to the divine. When the transformation will take place, how it will take place is entirely their baby. So it's good to know what is given to me and what is given to uh, the divine. So transformation is the result and I suppose... Nishkam karma in its ultimate sense means the goal or the fruits of yoga have also to be surrendered to the divine. So what is given to me is to give myself to the divine. And I have to see whether in me the urge has come. The urge for progress, the aspiration. Now the signal for transformation, if at all, uh, you know, one has to put it because um, let me connect it with something which uh, I have felt from time to time. That, uh, you know, normally there is the aspiration and the aspiration to serve the divine. There comes a time when you realize that I cannot truly serve as long as I am a defective creature. So there is a beautiful, you know, one liner of the mother. She says, O Lord, a prayer of the mother, O Lord, uh, may we serve thee uh, and know thee. And uh, she says, to know you... Um, so that we may serve you better. So I suppose this idea of transformation to me personally, this is a purely personal thing. I have realized that unless I am transformed or by I, I mean whatever I meaning one may put into it doesn't matter. So unless humanity is transformed, it cannot really truly serve the divine will in all its fullness. There will be imperfection. And if we are Speaking about the divine victory and the fulfillment of the divine will, transformation is a prerequisite. And the day I understand that, that transformation is also not a personal goal. In fact, Shobindo cautioned that there is nothing like a personal transformation. It is the goal of mankind. There is nothing like one person out, out here and another person out there got transformed. It's by nature a collective thing. And uh, the day I understand individually that, well, um, like Champaklalji's famous uh, prayer to the mother once he asked the mother after many years that mother I have served you so long as I felt it, I must serve you but now I want to serve you the way you want me to serve you now that I suppose is something marvelous that's another level it takes us and that level is that unless I am transformed this instrumentality is transformed 
uh, unless I come out of this ignorance, uh, unless I have made this utter surrender, as long as a breath or a heartbeat is even left from being given to the divine, I cannot really be a truly faithful instrument uh, for which ultimately this creation is moving towards. So that's uh, the way I look at it. Uh, so transformation is again for that purpose, not an end in itself. And there is nothing like individual transformation. So when the urge comes for perfection so that I may serve him better, this this keep, this keep humility is important because at one place, Shurabindu cautions us that, you know, when we say, Aham Brahmasmi, he says, well, all that is true. <laughs> but when we say it without realizing it fundamentally, it can be very dangerous. It can just uh, aggrandize the egoism. So it's always important to always know that when I say this Aham Brahmasmi, it's about the divine, that we are all one with the divine and the divine dwells in all. So that's why as a natural corrective, it's important. Transformation is the collective goal of mankind. And we should leave it to the divine mother when she will and how she will. Uh, what is given to us is to give ourselves completely to the divine and we have to only look into that, that how much is given to the divine and how much is still with the ego. That's a huge exercise, a lifelong exercise. <laughs> mm. Thank you. There is another question. I have been practicing Buddhism and I have heard nothing in your talk today that does not agree with those teachings. Are there fundamental differences between them? No, that's very true. I'm glad that you got it like this because, uh, well, most people very strictly, they tend to distinguish Buddhism as it is understood today. But if we look into the teachings of the Buddha in their origin, so the, when Buddha speaks about, he doesn't use the word yagya the way we understand it. But when Buddha speaks about uh, dharma, Buddha speaks about the right perception, the right conduct, the eightfold path. It's an entire purificatory process. When Buddha speaks about the sharanam to Buddha, sharanam to the sangam, the collective march of mankind, when he speaks about uh, that, you know, take refuge. Uh, now people interpret it as Buddhahood. That's okay. Uh, that both both of them is true. At the same level, when Buddha speaks about the, you know, the he, the Mahayana, which takes that stand of Buddha, that he refused the Mahanirvana, as long as a single creature was struggling with suffering, I suppose there are many elements in Buddhism. Uh, uh, again, uh, sense the transformation, but that's because the descent is missing, the supramental door which can transform us completely. Now, of course, I must uh, say here that transformation is a word used in two senses. One is a very generic sense. So there are people who meet me after a few sessions. They say, oh, doctor, I, I got transformed. <laughs> that's okay. I don't mind taking that. So that's one way of transforming means I'm no more the same person. So there is, you know, a person who develops saintliness, for example, uh, who was a scoundrel can well say that, well, it has transformed me. To that extent, it's true. When Angulimal changes into Ananda, it's a transformative experience. But Shurabindo, that's why he qualified that the way I use the word transformation is in a slightly different sense. It's not about ethical uh, perfection or saintliness, uh, you know, or, or a moral rectitude. He doesn't use in that sense. But what transformation means is my entire nature in all its details is completely open. And, uh, and let me qualify from within to the most outward is completely open, completely receptive 
to the divine consciousness coming from above and within and manifested without the least diminution or distortion. Now that is perfect perfection and Sri is not happy uh, short of that. And that's why he spoke about supermind because overmind spiritual transformation is there. Of course, if he, anybody who makes an ascension, the Vedic Rishis made an ascension, they didn't have the idea of descent, but descent can take place also, some degree. When they spoke about the intelligence getting illumined, when they spoke about the heart becoming one with every heart, but that is not there, certainly not developed in all its fullness, and I suppose because the time was not there. But uh, I truly congratulate if somebody can see the parallel between uh, the Buddha's teachings and the Gita because most of the time this is missed. Uh, Buddhism has been turned too much into a nirvanic, otherworldly. I believe that this was not the original teaching of the Buddha. And I suppose this is what the mother uh, spoke when she uh, writes a prayer with Shakyamuni and, you know, and Shubhinda said it's about Gautama the Buddha. Uh, who comes to her and says, when have men understood the divine? And when I look at uh, his teachings, the great compassion, uh, you know, the state of true Ahinsa, which Buddha represents, um, all the great um, higher qualities which one can embody, and then turn the gaze towards earth, which at least in Mahayana is there. So definitely it's a great uh, practice. And, and no wonder the mother took up this book, um, you know, in nineteen, uh, yeah, in nineteen fifty-seven or fifty-eight, around that time, is it the last book she has taken? Unfortunately, they put it clubbed with the talks of twenty-nine to thirty-one in volume three. So, if you don't read the editorial, you feel these were taken up by her in twenty-nine to thirty-one, but actually, they were taken up. They are the last, some of the last talks she has taken because she saw that humanity needs this needs it uh, to, you know, walk on the forward path. Mother herself as an adept in Buddhist yoga and the yoga of the Gita. So, of course, Buddhism as it is understood as an Atmavad, I am not going into that, but Buddhism as it should be understood. Not today if we talk about Buddhism, it's about an Atmavad and all that makes a uh, meaningless thing about, uh, you know, rebirth and uh, there is no individual soul. Uh, well, Buddha was silent on these aspects and I suppose um, Buddhist philosophy should also remain silent. It should say, <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry, I mean, it should say, I don't know, that's an honest thing. <laughs> so, uh, so yes, of course, there are many beautiful things. Yeah, Buddhism as philosophy is actually a very different thing than psychology. It's yes. more psychological, yogic uh, tradition of finding the silent self or even going into the asat, into the non-being, which you have been well, highly about. Well, yes, because the moment you talk about the transcendent and you just stop at the sat, it's not enough because you have to go. The Vedic Rishis, Shubhinda speaks about it, they had that strength and the courage to go beyond the sat. Uh, into that asat in the higher sense, not asad as we understand as in asadoma asadgamya, not that. But yes, definitely, it it shot up as he said, so shot up way beyond. That you should know, you should realize asat in order to know sat. Yes, absolutely. So that utter freedom, and and I think it's good that you know 
these uh, beautiful conciliatory synthetic ideas are developing uh, okay dissent uh, wouldn't be there and the supramental and the transformation of instruments uh, but i suppose uh, we have to see all these religious not religious i would say spiritual movements which turned into religions unfortunately uh, but spiritual movements as ways to make mankind move one step forward that's how i would i see it that buddha was needed in his own time and uh, what a mighty intellect and a powerful vital uh, there is that poem of shrivinda in bengali where he says he tramples over desires and the ego so he is uh, i mean if i have to draw a comparison between shankara and buddha buddha stands uh, shankara and buddha stands perhaps equal on counts of the intellect but when it comes to the vital buddha is remarkable yeah so each of them as i said christian mysticism there is so much psychic transformation when you read the prayers of the christian mystics it's something amazing i mean so refreshing but if you read the history of inquisitions <laughs> then you i mean this is what we in india have suffered you know goa it's such a horrible story but that's not what christian mysticism is about so so catch that mystic element and take it forward but only thing is we should not stop with that my whole issue is like i have loved krishna and i i have like gita later on as i understood much better the upanishad but the problem is that all that is fine but that final element is missing and if i have to take that i might as well turn towards them who know all this have realized all this and now take us one step the next logical step so i look at it like that the entire spiritual history where each had his role still have their roles uh, because there is a lot of mankind which which is too crude uh, and if you take up shirvindra's yoga uh, um, uh, being just a crude animal you have to first go through that human state you can't just uh, leap from the animal to the uh, superhuman <laughs> so <laughs> one risks uh, becoming inframental rather than supramental so you know it's so important <laughs> yeah yeah right uh, infrarationally instead of yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Have you have to surrender everything surrender the common sense now i don't have to do anything mother is doing everything all these stock uh, statements so you know as i said 6 hours work in the ashram is the yoga so all this one can easily get trapped and caught into this so these come to teach us that that this is a serious quest and keep the quest alive aspiration is common to all the religions but there i have a very interesting take on buddha well uh, just uh, as an aside see um, savitri's yoga begins when she confronts death she is face to face with death of satyavan Uh, now buddha's yoga also begins when he confronts death and he realizes the transience of uh, creation and the temporariness of this world and successively illusion after illusion uh, he eventually touches the permanent that is how it it goes uh, the divine mother also in savitri starts with the confronting death but she takes another route she enters into the realm of death and discovers the permanent there by the power of love she brings out the permanent that is the transmutation of death which comes at the end so i suppose this is where the 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 fundamental difference lies there that uh, the permanent which is there beyond behind transient things and the permanent which is here in everything which is transient and to bring it out and use the transient to express the permanent 
and build immortally with mortal things. Quote unquote, Shirobindo. That's what I feel that the fundamental difference arises. But in practices, many things which are psychologically beautiful. Thank you. And there is one more question. Can you comment on Vanaprastha? Okay. For a Sri Aurobindo serious seeker, where does uh, Vanaprastha fit in? Thanks. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, first I'll give you a little background, then a small little story which recently I came to know. So, well, in in Indian prince, uh, you know, um, uh, spiritual thought, which they try to organize society around the great realizations and experience of the Rishi, they believed in the principle of graduality, that not everybody is ready for that uh, great leap. So, uh, Shobindo himself, when people at a very young age, at 19, 20, 21 came, Shobindo did not accept and he writes that, that I am not keen to accept adolescence into the yoga because the vital nature with all its conflicts comes up. And then it is difficult to handle it because the forces of transformation are going to bring out many, many things. So, um, because Indian thought believed in it, so it had woven into the society the spiritual uh, way of life. So, first is dharma, which is the, you know, the brahmacharya ashram where the foundations of life are laid. So, if you look at uh, the aims, purusharthas, it's artha, kama, dharma, moksha. But if you look at it from this... Uh, Brahmacharya Ashram, where the foundations of dharma, how life should be led, that is, uh, there is great emphasis on augmenting your capacities through the practice of Brahmacharya, which is much more than merely, uh, you know, uh, sexual continence, but that's a different subject. Then comes Grahastha. As a householder, you wrestle with life. And I do believe that a person who has not wrestled with life, and that's where Gita comes so handy. A person who has not faced life in all its grim earnest, all its moods and uh, magnificence and dangers and delight uh, it's a great preparation for the yoga so many people who want to cut short well Shukdev, one Shukdev yes but uh, the model is not Shukdev but Janak so well Grahastha and then there comes a time when you have tasted what world is having known its limits and limitations not escaped from it, but known its limits and limitations. But as a conqueror, if I may add, in the line of the Gita, Rajyam Samradham, then one enters into the Vanaprastha, where one begins to turn higher and seek for greater things in the company of the sages, as it is called. And then, of course, nowadays we don't have to seek necessarily company of the sages because they are beautiful books. So one, one goes into the company of these books which are Shabda Brahma, come from the sages. In olden times, you, we didn't have that, you know. So we had to, people had to travel into one and look for the hermits and go to their ashrams. Of course, uh, it has a special advantage. But also the company of these books which are uplifting, show us the way. And finally, of course, the... Moksha Sanyas, which is uh, the the goal as it was. But even there, it was not Moksha, never meant uh, release from the cycle of birth and death, but freedom from ignorance. So this is the usual, but Sri says that this, uh, very interestingly in foundations of Indian culture, he says it can take a leap because what happens in the next life? Somebody has gone through all the four ashramas. Does it mean in the next life again he will go through? No, he the soul will be ready. So there, more and more, there will be souls which are ready. They don't have to go through all these. They are ready maybe at a younger age, 25, 30, and they are ready for the uh, 
for the new creation and the supramental yoga. So this we have to remember. Uh, just as an interesting aside, recently I travelled to Bangalore, uh, not Bangalore, four hours from Bangalore. There is a place called Shurabindu Dham. And the man who, behind it wanted to start a Vanaprastashram because of somebody's advice. So he started a Vanaprastashram. He had a lot of money, he had done plenty uh, and he didn't know what to do. He says, I was very egoistic and then... Uh, I thought I am a moneyed man, rich man, successful man, and etc. Till suddenly, this uh, somebody told him, "If you don't use your wealth rightly now, next life you'll be a poor man." So it started with that. <laughs> so he said, "Okay, let me make a one prastashram at somebody's advice." So he started a proper yagishala with proper, you know, uh, people who come who do weigh the part, and all this is done. You probably you may find it interesting, you know, if you visit that place. So then, but then he came across Shabindo's teachings. Now this one prast was under the influence of Ari Samaj teachings. So, you know, uh, and he faithfully followed it. He said, no guru, nothing, nothing for me. It's the inner yagya, it is the yagya and the one prast. And then he came across Shabindo and the mother's teachings. So he said, oh, this is something way beyond. So he completely left it, though he is still one of their trustees because all his wealth is there. And people revere him. He is, he is a very beautiful person, a combination of child, soul and wise person, truly. And, uh, and uh, so he is still associated with the one prastashram, but he created another place or was instrumental in creating another place just next to it. And he called it, calls it Sri Aurobindo Dham. It's an amazing place on the foothills of uh, one of the, you know, uh, hills in uh, Karnataka. And at the confluence of Kaveri and Arkavati. And it's amazing that, you know, one pressed and then he realized that, no, 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 this is not enough. This is not, there is something still greater. So he said, no, I can't put my feet in two boats. And he's now completely, uh, you know, that I have to give myself totally to mother. But he says that, well, my name is still there. I am one of the trustees and he laughs over it. <laughs> so, yes, one pressed uh, was the way. Old way, very good uh, way of or the masses. But then what happens after in one life one has practiced all the four ashramas and the purusharthas? What happens in next life? Does he go again? No, obviously he takes a leap. So there are souls which are ready. Yes. There is one last question. Uh, can you share how you had uh, the courage to quit the money-making and became a full-time sadhak speaker. How do you support yourself? I don't know how to answer. I don't believe that joining the ashram is equivalent to becoming a full-time sadhak. So for me, uh, it is mother's grace, uh, if you ask me. Though there is a whole detailed video on the same subject in, in, in YouTube. Um, but nevertheless, the important part was that this earth was so strong that uh, making money, ambition, it's not that I did something to, uh, to throw it off. I didn't have to struggle. The earth was so much that I want to serve the mother, that I want to all the time live near her. And that was incidentally my whole attraction for the ashram, even today. It's because she has uh, stepped over here. It's there. Tapasya Stali. It's not with the with the institution. Of course, the institution is from them to that extent. Yes, but um, so that's why I wanted to be here. 
So this idea of who will support, how it will be, but basically mother did it beautifully because I wanted to, uh, you know, take release at nine years of service. It would have been without pension. It was denied at 14, denied uh, at 18, denied. So, you know, 18 is, uh, government is at maximum advantage because at 20, I get minimum pension. So if I leave at uh, 18, I'm the big loser. So I was sure they will release me. They said, no, no, we have given you very nice annual confidential reports. So you have a very bright future. So I went on to say that, you know, please spoil my report. But it didn't work out. And as I crossed 20 years, which is the minimum pension, suddenly uh, one of the persons who was, uh, I had been involved with treatment of somebody known to him. He became a top person in the uh, well, Air Force and he called me as soon as he took over office he said, Alok, I know what you want please put your papers, I said, sir, I have tried everything, he said, I'll see it through and he became truly an instrument of the Divine Mother, I put in my papers, within three months I was out so I got minimum pension now, uh, well, there is no end to greed, but in my life, uh, at least in my life I can say, she has looked after me in such wonderful ways I'll just share two experiences, though, though they are personal, but Yoga Shem Vahamiyam came uh, so well, uh, beautifully true. So when I shifted to this uh, house in Desiree, from the place where I was living with uh, my wife and son, so it was, again, because I wanted to be 24 hours in a service. This, this is just an urge, like a child's urge. So Desiree is a place where I am in care of the elderly. So it takes care of like, okay, I am on call. <laughs> like meter is. <laughs> so that way, nobody can be 24 hours in service that way. So when I came here, uh, my wife uh, gave me a fridge. Uh, she passed on her old fridge to me, but well, well serviceable. She said, instead of you buying one, I'll buy one. I said, no, 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 uh, I don't need. She said, no, 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 you will need sometimes uh, all this, she said. I said, there is nothing which I can ever keep in my fridge. And trust me, it is uh, now how many years? Nine years. And my fridge is never empty. I keep receiving something or the other. God knows from where, what. I have not purchased a single thing for the last 30 years. Uh, going into the market for my purchase. If somebody takes me, very happily I buy. <laughs> Though initially I used to resist it, but then that's a different thing. Uh, so whatever I need, much more than three times the need. Uh, I don't know. She she provides. God knows how, why, who gets inspired. Uh, she provides. So as to full-time sadhana, I don't believe uh, anybody... Uh, at least I am not qualified to say that I am a full-time sadhak uh, by the mere fact that I am living in the ashram my criteria of full-time sadhak is that every heartbeat every breath is consecrated to the Divine Mother and I am waiting for that day when this will happen <laughs> that will be my personal fulfillment it is very far from that uh, so yeah our time and ashram ITS if, if you want to call it by that name uh, and taken care of by the Mother uh, she gives me whatever I need and uh, whatever is not there. I never felt the want also that, you know, otherwise I had made it a philosophy that whatever I don't get, I take it that, you know, um, I offer it to her. But frankly speaking, till date, uh, I don't remember a single moment where I had even the slightest want in that sense. Uh, now sometimes I pick up things like fruit juices and all otherwise there was a time when I would not even buy the simplest things and they would come 
then i said this is also being egoistic <laughs> so be a little sahaj but for many years uh, she takes care wonderfully wonderfully a wonderful mother of unnumbered soul and i believe she takes this care to everybody i don't believe that anybody is special everyone she takes care in in her own wonderful ways and that is something so beautiful or just i may close with one small little anecdote you see uh hutadi wonderful of course everyone is wonderful in their own way and when we came here uh, some of these sadaks would say when mother was there and honestly it used to be like a hammer on my heart because i have never seen her with my physical eyes but i never had this feeling that when she was there she so 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 real so when uh, she said uh, when mother was here mother was here then my wife couldn't help it she said hutadi please don't say that to us she is always present she said no no but you don't know how she used to take care when she was there she said no you don't know how much she takes care then i had to you know diffuse the situation how much and this is so true in the so many examples the way she takes care of not just outer needs money money is a very small thing in life frankly but at every level of the inmost difficulties which i felt in my nature that uh, this is impossible and the way she works and clears it that one day you want to recollect and recall oh it was there it was there but you can't find it so at every level uh, i i would only close by saying the famous uh, from words from savitri lay all on her she is the cause of all if this is she of whom the world has heard wonder no more at any happy change each easy miracle of felicity of her transmuting heart the alchemy is namaste 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 thank you thank you alok namaste namaste